0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all
1: kinds of religious issues and topics.
0: Okay, welcome to The Interpreter Show. Uh, conference edition i guess we can call this uh, i'm neil rapley i'm joined here in studio by uh, jasmine rapley and steven smoot and i do believe we have Hales swift on the line is that you Hales?
2: i believe you have me also though there's always this moment of doubt <laughs> there
0: is there is always and you know it, last time especially we had quite a bit of trouble so i'm very glad that we've got you and there isn't any uh, any confusion here any problems uh, everybody's here, and uh, like I said, this is kind of our conference edition of the show, if you will. Uh, it's been a, a very um, exciting general conference. Um, and it's been, um, you know, in some ways, I know sometimes we overstate the historic nature of a conference, but this was historic in at least one respect, in that President Nelson was the oldest President of the Church uh, to conduct uh, or to to preside, I should say. He never actually conducted a session, but to preside over and speak at a general conference. So we're not counting Methuselah, right? Well, uh, you know, I this dispensation. Any of the primordial right? patriarchs do they count? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, this dispensation in the latter days. Uh, He's officially the oldest president of the church in history, and therefore the oldest one to preside over a general conference. So, that's indeed. kind of exciting. Uh, yes, Hales. Oh, it's a deep. Yeah, and I don't know about you. We were just talking about right before we came on the air. Uh, it almost felt like he is anticipating this being his last one. Uh, the way well, it I don't included. know if we
1: want to <laughs> announce his funeral before it's happened. I don't want to. Get anyone like scared or anything, but he he definitely gave a very emotional, tearful kind of goodbye after this conference. I mean, he talked about he very fervently bore his testimony of the gospel at the very end of the conference, and you know said, "God be with you till we meet again." And then the closing hymn was, "God be with you till we meet again," and it was uh, pretty emotional for him. And so some people have suggested oh does he know something that we don't know as far as his longevity his lifespan is his time with us coming to a close but for all we know it's just him you know feeling the spirit and god be with you till we see you next april but uh we'll we'll see we've certainly had a good run with president Nelson. it's been five years in his presidency and he's now the oldest prophet and he doesn't seem like he's slowing down anytime soon he seems very spry but you know, things can change at the flip of a dime.
0: Certainly, and uh, we certainly don't wish ill for him. Uh, we'd love for yeah. him to uh, to live long and prosper, if you will. Uh, so
1: we hope that God sustains and blesses our beloved prophet for a long life because he's done much good for us.
3: I, I thought it was cute that President Nelson had a joke about the fact that he was sitting on a stool <laughs> at the at the pulpit. <laughs> so um, this was posted on his Facebook yesterday. Um, And I was there in person this morning and noticed the stool as well uh, that they had set up. So it was for both days that he Uh had the stool going. He said, what a marvelous first session of general conference we have had. I felt spiritually renewed as I listened to those who spoke. They were absolutely inspiring. And I am certain the next four sessions will be equally wonderful. Some have noticed that I sat on a chair to deliver my message this morning. What a help that was. The other day, it occurred to me that I had been alive during nearly half of the number of the years since the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized in 1830. That is a lot of years, even though I don't feel old. My wife, Wendy, insists that she still can't get me to act my age. But I will admit that sometimes even small adjustments, such as a chair, help those of us who age on stage. I may not ski black diamond runs anymore, but whether standing or seated, I delight in speaking and hearing words of truth. And this weekend will be filled with them. I hope you will join me in savoring the beautiful messages that still lie ahead.
1: Well, that was a lovely and long way to say, why was I on a stool? I'm old. I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But it was still endearing nonetheless. And honestly, I mean, um, most of the talks are fairly short, like seven minutes or something like that. But, you know, the prophet speaks for a long time. And even I would get tired standing that long. Sometimes I feel like it would be nice to have a stool, regardless of how old you are. Uh, indeed.
0: Uh, so, why don't we go ahead? Uh, we can, I don't know how we want to proceed in talking about highlights. Uh, probably go session by session. Um, Saturday
1: morning Saturday session morning started session. off really strong. I mean, I feel like for me anyway, the strongest sessions were the Sunday afternoon, the last one, and the Saturday morning, the first one. I felt like they were just really solid. Lots of very interesting talks brought up. Dallin H. Oak started that session talking about what the church does for the poor and needy. And that's in response to some criticisms the church has gotten in the past about the way they handle their finances. And um, President Oaks reported that the church spent $906 million, almost a billion dollars in uh, charitable projects and humanitarian aid. And that's absolutely just mind-blowing.
3: Yeah, so um, I— I know that it's usually considered indecorous to kind of, you know, number drop how much you're giving to charity. But I think it's okay for the church to do this uh, because of the, oh, but what about all the shopping malls they've spent on and that sort of thing that you hear. So um, I don't know. I feel like it, they've kind of earned it to, you know, <laughs> let people know to flex a little bit, I suppose. I know that's not what they're doing. That's what I am doing, what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, like it's, 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 it was quite, uh, a- astonishing to hear that number, and that was just for what like is- fiscal year twenty twenty one, right? Uh, yeah, I had no that was just idea no. that much. Yeah. Anyways, well, I, I S- suppose S- when some of these ex opponent- Mormon podcasters are spending that much on charity, then they can, you know, have room to complain.
2: <laughs> sometimes your opponents just insist on setting the ball to you in the same spot over and over again, and it- eventually it just makes sense to spike it. Uh, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, when, when critics are just going to harp on this over and over and over again, and and I think that's more to the point, I think, than, like, trying to brag or anything. It's just more like, okay, like right. like, maybe we could just do a better job at, like, at least putting the information out there about what we're doing for for charity and humanitarian mm-hmm. efforts and stuff like that. So that, like, the narrative about, oh, you don't spend any money or you don't spend enough can be kind of quashed by any reasonable objective person, at least. I mean, right. we quickly saw online, you know, very quickly, everyone was already saying, that's still not enough. And, of course, none of these people would ever... Uh, could ever provide a number like, this is how much the church would have to give in order for it to be enough. It's just, we can, we could, the church could double that this year and yeah. they'd still be like, oh, that's not enough. I mean, it's,
3: so, it's fundamentally a bad faith argument. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, the, these people don't sincerely have concern about how much money the church is giving. Uh, this is textbook virtue signaling. It's a textbook bad faith argument. Um, I guarantee you that the beneficiaries and recipients of that 900 billion dollars i guarantee you they're not too bummed out by the fact that you know the church hasn't given more than they or whatever right like and they say well this should be more of course we can all do more like you know there's always going to be room for more right but uh i don't know 900 billion bucks in one year or million bucks in one year that's that's pretty impressive and the fact that the church like strictly speaking doesn't like have to do that quote unquote right Uh, like its primary purpose is not as a charitable organization, but it does it as part of its religious mission. Um, Again, you're right, Neil. Any reasonable, fair-minded person would look at that and they would applaud that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I appreciate that in addition to maybe pushing back on some narratives that have been spun on the interwebs, he also impressed the importance of... um, like, wake up and do something more than dream of your mansion above. That was the song that uh, was played right after Elder Oaks' talk, uh, Have I Done Any Good in the World Today? And he kind of impressed the idea that, like, it's our responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ to help the poor and the needy. So there's gospel principles to it, um, in addition to just talking about the numbers. And I I do think that... We could benefit as a people from being more aware of the work that the church as an institution does towards the poor and the needy and for charitable causes, because I think it helps bring that more to our forefront and also help us recognize, well, where can I be helping more? How can I contribute um, to the poor and needy in better ways? Um, If it's kind of just tucked behind uh, the curtain in the corner, it's, it's harder to... You know, you just don't think about it as much. You can kind of put it in the back of your mind. So I do appreciate that emphasis because I think we can all do more. And it comes uh, pretty timely right in the wake of Hurricane Ian, where there was a lot of Mm -hmm. flood damage done in Florida and the Carolinas. And I had members on Various sides of my family who that day, you know, skipped conference because they were asked by the church's helping hands to help clean up the disaster restoration of those floods. And so I think there was a great lesson there, too. And like this is an, ex- you know, a very concrete example of what that kind of resource is going towards and how. You know, even though this is general conference and it's a very spiritually important occasion for all Latter-day Saints, there's also, you know, very practical ox in the mire sort of applications here that when people are in need of help, we stop what we're doing and those who can, we stop and help. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but in addition to Elder Oaks's talk, there were some other very exciting things that happened in the first session of conference, namely President Uchtdorf. He spoke to the youth, and he wanted to emphasize how much God loved them, and how um, and uh, how they would envision an encounter with the Savior being like. And he wanted to emphasize that they can find truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of that led up to the announcement of a new For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. The previous For the Strength of Youth pamphlet was published in 2001, and it outlined a lot of the standards or rules that Latter-day Saint youth follow, and it included specific things like, uh, you know, we don't drink tea or coffee, and watch wholesome media, and don't date till you're 16, and, you know, um, women should cover their shoulders, and shorts should go down to the knees, and, you um, And like sexual purity and pornography. And it had very specific outlines on all this. And kind of the main thrust of the introduction of this new pamphlet is that it's supposed to be driven a lot more uh, by principles and eternal truths of the gospel and the whys and the hows around why we live certain standards. And it has a lot less of the what. So they'll talk about why our bodies are sacred, but they won't tell you um, what is or isn't okay for dating, for sex, for the law of chastity, for tattoos, tattoos or, yeah, piercings, or and so they leave it very much up to the discretion of the youth, the parents, and the leaders.
0: Well, on on things like sex and and uh, the law of chastity, it's still pretty clear. Like it, you know, talks about how sex is something that is reserved for marriage and things like that. But in a lot of the other uh, sorts of things that you might interpret as more kind of, uh, you know, guidelines that were for, you know, contemporary living and things like that, uh, that aren't necessarily things explicated in the scriptures and, and in our covenants, they don't give the same kind of guidelines they did before. They just kind of say, Hey, our bodies are sacred. And so you should treat them sacred in, in, you know, you should treat them like they're sacred. And, uh, Okay, go figure out what that means, I
1: guess. (laughs) Right. And uh, I think in some ways it opened – well, in some ways it is a lens towards the global church since there's uh, a lot of the standards or rules in the 2001 manual uh, may apply really well to um, American youth. But maybe have different interpretations globally. I mean, I can think one off the top of my head. We, um, uh, Latter day Saint, uh, Tonalyn Rutherford talked about doing a study in India and how. Latter-day Saints are told in the For the Strength of Youth manual not to date before they're 16. And most American youth would see that as a prohibition that like, don't do that till you're 16 because we want to protect you from like having sex or getting into two series of emotional relationships when you're too young or mature to really understand them. But apparently the youth in India saw it more as a commission because the cultural norm there is to have your marriages and relationships arranged by your parents in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways. And so they kind of the youth would see this for the Further Strength of Youth, and they saw it as like a mandate that, like, no, we sh- shouldn't be having arranged marriages. We need to date because the Further Strength of Youth manual says that we need to date when we're 16. And so you can just see how there's, you know, just various interpretations based on what cultural context you're coming from. And so the church has, you know, tried to make it more flexible for cultural adaptation. On uh, dating itself, I'm trying to remember exactly the verbiage. In the Old for the Strength of Youth manual, it says very directly, do not date until you're 16 years old. Um, This one allows a little bit more flexibility. It's more about um, for your emotional and spiritual development and safety, one-on-one activity should be postponed until you're mature. Age 16 is a good guideline. Counsel with your parents and leaders. And it goes into more things like that. So it it allows for more flexibility and they couch things in more um, guideline type uh, verbiage and rhetoric instead of saying, do not date till you're 16. So Mm. that's just kind of a little flavor of what the new FSY pamphlet has. Um, Like we mentioned, there's no mention of specific modesty standards. It talks about the sacredness of your body and how we should respect the sacred vessels Heavenly Father's given us. But there's no specific outlines on, you know, how long your sleeve should be, what your hemlines or your neckline should look like. Um, And same thing with tattoos and piercings. There used to be a more clear denunciation that because our bodies are sacred we do not have tattoos or piercings and now it just kind of has more generic your bodies are sacred and we should respect them and it just kind of leaves them at that on the question for tattoos and piercings
3: yeah it says specifically the lord's standard is for you to honor the sacredness of your body even when that means being different from the world let this truth and the spirit be your guide as you make decisions especially the excuse me decisions That have lasting effects on your body. Be wise and faithful, and seek counsel from your parents and leaders. I'm kind of disappointed they didn't take it back to like Law of Moses when they specifically (laughs) outlawed tattoos because like that's like a idolatrous Canaanite thing or whatever, (laughs) right? Like, uh, but uh, that's okay. Higher law, lesser law, whatever. Uh, No, uh, all joking aside. Yeah, I I think it's remarkable that they've kind of taken in this direction because. I don't know about the kids these days, but I grew up with very specific, you know, uh, don't get tattoos and mm-hmm. don't have more than one set of piercings and these sorts of things. Um,
1: and the For the Strength of Youth manual before that talked about, you know, don't go out with curlers in your hair. And so, oh, did it really? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh my the, goodness. Like a really old. Like, like the 1950s. Like oh, I was <laughs> going to say who, who?
3: Which young woman had curlers back in the two thousand four? Right, like when I was a teenager. What <laughs> well, you the know,
1: heck? It, you know, back then it was kind of a little bit trendy to go out with this disheveled look and the church has always kind of strived to put forth this image of you know having youth that are clean
3: cut deal Yeah. (laughs) yeah
1: well you know trying to be like a classy well put together polished groomed people and so you see those holdovers in the 2001 manual as well Um, but this one leaves a lot more flexibility up to youth parents and leaders and I do wonder what that means as far as implementation because there aren't specific guidelines for like modesty for example can youth leaders put guidelines on like what you're allowed to wear to specific youth activities or is that no longer going to be a cultural Mm. norm I'm not sure how that's going to look
3: yeah, on my mission, we had the White Missionary Handbook, and it would say things like dress and grooming, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. wear the missionary suit or whatever. But then my mission president had, like, an addenda or had <laughs> addenda to the White Mission Handbook where it was, like, specific rules for the mission he wanted people to be following. that got even more particular. So I, I imagine a local, it would, you know, local circumstances would dictate what would be appropriate. Um, since, like, standards of modesty are going to be really different in draper utah versus yeah i don't know uh delhi india for example right right?
1: and i do wonder one thing i love about this new manual is that it anchors a lot of the standards to the temple recommend questions every single chapter ends with a section on the temple recommend questions and it kind of connects each section to at least one of the questions so that you're So that the focus of these standards and rules is really pointing towards the temple. Like one of the reasons that we keep our body sacred is because, um, you know, you're going to go through the temple and you're going to make covenants there and you're going to um, wear the temple garment from that day forth and things like that. So I do like that focus. I kind of was like hoping that there would be a mention of the temple garment somewhere in there as in the context Mm -hmm. of the modesty discussion, but there wasn't. So I don't know what the rationale was on that but
3: might might be a bit too young for i don't know right maybe but if
1: i just kept thinking that if they're like putting so much more emphasis on the temple temple and like making that the structural focus of the manual like maybe it would make more sense but i guess not they know more than me on that um some interesting additions to the manual that didn't exist in the previous one include things um like same sex attraction now actually i don't remember maybe the old manual did mention this briefly i don't think
3: it did honestly i okay. think i think it was just assumed right like oh yeah we're talking about heterosexual relationships
1: yeah I'll have I to go back I don't and check. Any,
3: yeah, I could be wrong, but I don't recall but any. But
1: the new one d- does emphasize uh, that same-sex attraction is not a sin, but that you know we should continue to live a lot of chastity.
0: So the previous uh, for strength of youth pamphlet did say homosexual and lesbian behavior is a serious sin. Oh, okay. If you find yourself struggling with same gender attraction, or are or you are being persuaded to participate in inappropriate behavior, seek counsel from your parents and bishop. They will help you. So, it, it that so there was a reference. That okay. was from the previous one. One of the things though, like we talk about the previous one being from 2001, but there was a 2011 update. That's true. And, you know, that the, what I just read from is the 2011 the update, edition right. technically. Yeah. I think the update wasn't extensive in 2011, but I know. You I
1: know. tried to find the actual 2001
0: manual, and I I can't. Like,
1: you, you need to, to go hunting at the DI for a <laughs> copy.
3: Yeah, you got to get a, or a ward library well, somewhere you, has it. You know, it. I'm sure
0: if I go through my old stuff right. that I have yeah, I'm like, sure, boxed copy. away, I might have it somewhere because that's when I was a youth. Obviously, that's when all of us were. Are youth. you
3: saying you just boxed up all your manuals and pamphlets, Neil, and didn't <laughs> didn't fall them as a kid? I I, like, I don't need this. <laughs> throw it under the bed, and you know, never touched it again.
0: I'm I'm just saying I have a lot of those <laughs> old early 2000s stuff still boxed away at this point because I don't use them much anymore.
1: One addition to the manual that I know for sure wasn't in the old one is a section on doubts and questions. It says, having questions is not a sign of weakness or lack of faith. In fact, asking questions can help build your faith. And it goes on to kind of explain, you know, how you can get help when you have questions with the gospel. And that wasn't necessarily as much an emphasis in the previous one, but I do think with the Um, Advent of the internet and smartphones and just access to so much information. There is more um, youth that have questions about specific things in church history, policy, doctrine, all that stuff. With the proliferation of um, faith crises and going through those, uh, the church wants to equip youth to be able to better handle those and uh, Mm. know how to approach doubts and questions. And uh, they still have a section on like pornography and that it's bad. But I do... I haven't compared the old with a new rhetoric necessarily, but I do feel like this new rhetoric feels, you know, it's very loving. It is very much geared towards repentance and hope and less condemnatory. Though, again, I haven't compared the exact verbiage between both manuals. Uh, it says Jesus Christ is the power to help you resist pornography and repent, turn towards him, turn away from darkness. Your bishop can help you receive strength and forgiveness through the Savior. It's very much, you know, couched in, in hope, loving. We can guide you to help you overcome things that, may be sh- you, that you might be struggling with. Um, If you want to check out the new For the Strength of Youth manual for yourself, you can find it on the Gospel Library app under the youth section. If you want to find the old manual, it's going to be harder now, but you can still (laughs) Google it and find a PDF of the 2011 version. And if you find a 2001 version, let us know.
0: (laughs) Uh, There is actually apparently a 2001 version for sale on Amazon. Ah. Uh, Which is it? (laughs) It's... uh, (laughs) Let's see. Um, For some reason, Amazon is not completely loading properly here for me. Ah.
3: But uh, it's... It'd be great if these are, like, worth a lot now. I can go and, like, get a whole bunch of copies and try selling them. Beanie babies.
0: Oh, just kidding. It actually says currently unavailable. So oh, it's listed on rats. Amazon, but uh, but nobody is currently selling it, apparently.
1: Well, any other thoughts on the pamphlet itself? Otherwise, we can keep yeah. going on talks. All right. Oh,
3: that seems like a good good roundup.
1: Well, um, in addition to President Uchtdorf, we had Tracy M. Browning speak in the morning session Saturday morning. She is um, in the primary presidency, and she's the first black woman to speak in general conference. She spoke on, you know, focusing on the Savior, having spiritual sight. She kind of made a endearing, self-deprecating joke about how, like, she's had bad eyesight ever since she was a kid. But then, you know, learning to look towards the Savior and gain spiritual sight has given her new... Um, perspective and, you know, all the offerings that we can give him. Um, Elder Renlin's talk I thought was really interesting. Um, again, kind of perhaps responding to certain narratives or ideas being pushed online. It was all about revelation and how to receive revelation, but also it gave some very clear guidelines about what is and is not revelation. This may, in fact, be like a Part two or a second part to his Heavenly Mother talk right. in the conference. Which is funny that it's become known as the Heavenly Mother Talk, but it was really about like the whole youth theme. Yeah, there's just one part of it. <laughs> it was just but, like one yeah. paragraph. Um but he talked about how reason can't replace revelation when it comes to learning more about Heavenly Mother. And so this talk was all about revelation, how we receive it and what is and is not con- counted as revelation. And one of the big things is Um, Revelation should also be in line with what is already established, revealed truth of the gospel. And if it conflicts with that, it's probably not revelation. Or um, if you, you know, there's certain things that we pray about and we receive guidance on, but um, we don't necessarily need to receive revelation on like new scripture if it's not coming from the prophets and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, I love the story when he says some crazy guy called him because he was he'd been arrested because he was trespassing because he was trying to dig up some scripture to translate under a building or whatever. And he told Renland, "If I if I show you the text i produced, will you pray about it if it's scripture?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> he just flatly said, "No, I won't." It's like, hey, good for you, right? Like, you know, we we need some more of that forthrightness there uh, when some of this craziness crops up. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a great talk as well.
1: And then President Nelson ended that session. Um, So President Nelson concluded the entire conference, but it was a pretty brief address. His main talk was at the end of the Saturday morning session, and he gave a pretty, um, very strong condemnation of abuse of any kind, being a grievous sin and talking about how the perpetrators are going to stand before man's laws, but also the wrath of Almighty God. And he was very strong about that. And he encouraged everyone to study the church's guidelines that they have on their website about how we can prevent abuse. The church has a training that every single leader who works with youth or children needs to take um, and periodically renew so that they're up to date on what the standards are as far as how we can most protect children as far as, like, always having more than one adult present and things like that. And uh And then, of course, he ended by stressing that God is the source of all truth and that we're going to hear lots of truth in general conference and to get ready for it. And that also, I would imagine, is somewhat of a response to the the accusations the church has been getting about sex abuse, namely Mm -hmm. in Bisbee, Arizona, the AP News covered... um, the allegations of the church the church's helpline covering up sex abuse right. and so yeah. this seemed to be some sort of if not response just um reflection on what the church actually thinks about abu- abuse how they treat it how they try to prevent it
3: yeah i i think uh anyone that's been paying attention in the last couple months can see what this is in response to right um Because the narrative is is out there now that, like, the church is deliberately and consciously covering up for abuse, right? It's one thing to make the argument that the church's law firm uh, gave bad legal advice to the bishop down there in Bisbee, Arizona, and that there's messiness with how that particular case was handled. But that has ballooned into, oh, well, you know, the Mormon church is just covering up for abuse. And And it's systemic. And it's systemic, and they don't care, right? So – uh, this is, yeah, very very clearly a corrective um, a- against that narrative.
1: So overall, so, I mean, the first session was really pretty jam-packed with socially charged issues. You had the church's finances with uh, President Oaks. You had the church's standards with the youth, the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. You had Razband responding to the- Concepts of revelation and President Nelson responding to some of the abuse allegations. So it was a pretty charged session as far as the topics they covered. But I thought it was really solid, and they um, they obviously ground everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you know how to make sure that we're teaching principles and we're not just you know waging internet battles. Um, But there were a lot of other great talks, and we want to make sure we get to them too. Um, Like Saturday afternoon. Uh, We had some good talks. We had President Ballard talking about pioneers and missionary work and encouraging people to go on missions, kind of dovetailing on his talk from last conference when he really emphasized solid missionary work. Um, Sister Yee, I feel like, was a talk that kind of um, was unexpectedly really, really good. Mm -hmm. Um, She's brand new in the Relief Society Presidency. And so we didn't really know much about her or what to expect from her, but she ended up sharing a really, like, visceral and personal story about how her dad, um, like, emotionally and verbally mistreated her growing up and how she held a lot of resentment about that. And, you know, years later, her dad passes away and she doesn't really want to... Um, Oh, wait, no, I'm mixing up two different conference stories, (laughs) but she had resentment against her dad and it was the power of the atonement that helped her heal, but not only just heal, but learn to forgive her dad. And it was a really powerful and heartfelt testimony of this very personal experience with um, childhood trauma and how they've overcome and have learned to extend love and really connect with the Savior in that way. I loved it. Um... Oh, I think my favorite talk, well, maybe not my favorite, but one of my favorites from this conference was Elder Suarez from the Saturday afternoon session. I really loved his emphasis on the roles of men and women and how we have um, very important essential roles to play and within a marriage relationship and how both a man and a woman are essential in that um, but both are equal before God, and one doesn't go before the other. And he really preached how we need to be in full partnership. There's no president and vice president. You are both, you know, co creators. You're both uh, there to work with each other, and how the main um, functions in a family should be to preside and to nurture, and how both spouses need to share in those responsibilities. And I loved it. I think there's a lot more I need to glean out of that talk once the text is published.
3: Yeah, that talk was great just for all the the love and attention that Elder Suarez gave to the Pearl Great Price, if I may say, Mm -hmm. as one who is teaching a class on the Pearl Great Price right now and trying to connect it with my students with some of the current teachings from the leaders of the church. Um, I thought this was great because he talks. He uses Adam and Eve as kind of the archetype, yeah. and that's what I've done in my class. And so I can now point my students to Elder Suarez to say, "Yeah, look, you know, the the Book of Moses and the Prodigy Price. One of the ways it expands on the Book of Genesis, because uh, after the fall." In Genesis, like, uh, you don't really get anything from Adam and Eve, right? They have kids, and, like, that's it. Um, and then it immediately focuses on to the kids. Um, but, at, but Adam and Eve and the Progate Price, they're still sort of focused right in center uh, right after the fall. And part of that is they're both co-working together. It's not just Adam toiling for the food, right? Adam and Eve are toiling together. They're offering sacrifices together. They're worshiping and calling upon the name of the Lord together. Uh, they, both get, uh, they, they both receive the gospel together. They're taught the gospel together. The... the uh, The the collateralness of the two, right, you might say, is much more prominent in the Progay Price. So as Latter-day Saints, it's a great sort of scriptural prototype for what we can look to. And I'm very happy that Elder Suarez picked up on that and used it as a touchstone for his discussion and depiction.
1: The final talk of the Saturday afternoon session was Elder Christofferson. And that one I thought was also like pretty... Well, a little socially charged because he talked about belonging in the church. And right off the bat, he first talks about racism and prejudice and how um, those are intolerable in the church and how we need to be diligent in rooting out racism and prejudice in our homes and in our hearts. And, um, and you know, kind of challenged us to really dig deep on what that's going to look like because there's no place for racism or prejudice in our church because we need to help people feel like they belong in the body of Christ. But he also went through a number of different scenarios of people who struggle to belong. Um, Couples who deal with infertility in a family or in a church full of families or people who have, um, who deal with chronic illnesses or same sex attraction, addiction, financial struggles, empty nesters, new move-ins. He listed a whole bunch of people and gave certain anecdotes and vignettes of people who struggle to belong and suggested that Kind of counterintuitively, one of the best ways we can increase belonging for ourselves if we feel like we don't belong is to minister and to sacrifice and to serve. When we put ourselves out there to serve others and to minister to others, that's really when we're going to feel like we belong the most. And so he kind of prescribed that as a remedy for belonging for yourself and for others. Because obviously, if you're putting yourself out there to minister to others, you're going to help others feel like they belong as well. And I, I mean, in my own life, I felt that's true. Um, in wards where I felt like I didn't belong or I didn't get along with everyone or it seemed standoffish. Um if when I kept to myself, you know, that didn't solve anything. It wasn't until I was asked to participate in a more high demand calling or I volunteered to do certain things that all of a sudden I felt like, "Oh, I'm making friends. I'm connecting with others. This feels really good and you're serving others and that's really where the magic happens for belonging."
0: Um I also thought uh he also talked about how belonging doesn't isn't something that grants license to ignore commandments or um, or obligations and things like that. And in fact, he stressed that, you know, our highest and deepest sense of belonging is going to be obtained through making and keeping covenant the co- covenants with God, um, and particularly, of course, the covenants that we make in the temple. And it is those covenants that bind us not only to God, but to the community, to the kingdom, if you will. Um, and all that are in it, and, and uh, obviously to families as well. Um, and so, you know, he, he I, I thought that was really important. If you want to feel like you belong in the community, you've got to make sure you are making and keeping the covenants that bind us together. Um, it's in the through first covenants
2: place. that we make a covenant community, right? And that it's through right. the community that we live out those covenants.
0: Yeah, exactly. Perfect.
1: Right. It's those covenants that are like consecration, promising that we are going to give everything we have to the kingdom of God, to each other. Like those promises that we make bind us to each other. I mean, they are oaths that we make to each other about being unified, being harmonious and being one and learning to love each other that really bind us together more than any other cultural or community association would. But that was the Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening was pretty short. I mean, it was under 90 minutes. We were done before 730. And there were some good talks. One that was noteworthy, I thought, was Elder Kausai, because he talked about stewardship over the earth, which we don't hear a ton about in General Conference, but I do like that we've been hearing a lot more of it. And he talked about it in different ways, that we're stewards over the God's creations. And so obviously that includes taking care of the earth and its resources, which I think we could definitely use more reminders of. And how that's part of our disciple commitments. But he also expanded it to other things that part of taking care of God's creation is participating in creation through the creation of music, art, literature, uh, medical discoveries, you name it. And also, the most important one being creating, like being, participating as a co creator with God in creating human life through procreation, creating bodies that are sacred and that we need to respect and honor. So I, I really like that one. It was kind of just like a different take than we normally hear.
3: Yeah, I'll leave it to the soft-hearted Frenchie to get all environmentalist on us, right? Uh, no, just kidding. I, I, I tremendously enjoyed Bishop Cosset's um, talk, and going back to the Progray Price, I was very pleased how much he tied it back into uh, creation, the creation accounts we get from Genesis and Moses, um, and once again, I've been trying to impress on my students the importance of what creation teaches us in the scriptural accounts thereof. That uh, it's not trying to give us a scientific accounting of the origins of creation in the universe, but rather it's trying to impart a sense of responsibility in man's role and man's position in the cosmos that God has ordained and set up, right? And uh, specifically at one point, for example, Elder Kaze mentioned the fact that as stewards of the earth, we are not allowed to abuse it for its natural resources or be exploitative. And that's a point I've tried to make often with my students, that a man is given dominion over the beasts of the field and the air and the fowls of the air and all the other stuff that God had made before God makes man on the sixth day. Um, but that phrase in Hebrew, that idea of having dominion, it's not like you're a, a bloodthirsty tyrant that can do whatever you want, right? Wanting cruelty or destruction. Rather, the man and the woman in Genesis are told to take care of it the way if they were like, uh, you know, noble kings over the earth, right? So – Uh, We can tie that in very nicely. I love the elder cause did that. He tied in very nicely this idea of stewardship over creation. Latter-day Saints should be environmentally minded and conscious uh, and what that looks like. So, yeah, that was one of my other highlights as well.
1: I thought it was interesting that he presented like two ways that we need to be good stewards. One is to take care of the earth and the other is to reproduce. I mean, those are two prongs that sometimes are at odds with each other in the environmentalist community that like, oh, it's our responsibility to not not reproduce more because it's bad for the environment. And yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are taught to do both. The first commandment given to Adam and Eve includes both of those things in a sense to multiply, to reproduce and to be co-creators with God in producing human life. Um, because that's one of the greatest purposes of this life is to give mm-hmm. bodies to God's spirit children so that they can progress mm-hmm. in the plan of salvation, but to also multiply and replenish the earth which may be a reference to you know taking care of it and so i think while they may be challenges to do both they're not at odds with each other and they're not mutually exclusive but it does mean that we need to step up in trying to be more efficient with our resources and being uh, good careful and good stewards over the earth and i know i could do a much better job about that but <laughs> um you know we're all trying well, yeah. Again, it like seems like we, in some we all ways do... the,
2: envir- the environmental perspective that he took was one of we should use wisely and be good stewards, but still use. Whereas a lot of uh, environmental thought, more in in the wider world, focuses more on we should reduce our use, eliminate it, and so forth. Whereas it seems like he, he differed in that specific respect.
0: Uh yeah, and I mean there is always that balance to strike and uh, to Jasmine's point in Genesis one uh, twenty eight where it says be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, it yeah. also says subdue it and have dominion yeah. over it you know things and things out of it he and, said, yes, yes. Yeah. And dominion we typically that's where we would insert or interpret or maybe retranslate, if you will, stewardship. Have stewardship over the earth. And that is the command, right? And so we are commanded to do both. Um, yeah, I recall at the last Mormon History Association
3: meeting, the plenary speaker was this guy who went on basically like an anti-Mormon tirade about how bad the church is for its bad uh, environmental policies. And it was so bizarre, one thing for like the venue that he was doing this, but it was also bizarre because some of the specific accusations he leveled against the church that they that it doesn't do, I'm like, but the church does that. <laughs> like uh like updating its infrastructure to be more green friendly like that's part of the big deal with these temple renovations they talk about this they're replacing all the old energy non efficient energy appliances or whatever to like make them more eco friendly or uh well well the church should have a th- an environmentalism page on his deal. It does. It has like a, a deal like it he, was so funny. He like clearly obviously did not know what the church actually was stressing. Well the church should have a theology of environmentalism. My man, we do. It's 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 <laughs> in the Pearl of Great Price, a theology of environment of caring for the earth. And plenty of prophets both now and then have talked about it. anyways it was it was pretty funny. And was just, it,
0: I, I think I remember a part of his thing was he put up like a screenshot of having like searched the church's website for I don't know. Yeah, that's environment right. or something like that, and he didn't get any results. And like really quickly, people were like, uh, "You just don't know how to use the church's search engine." Search engine, and yes, people exactly. just knowing the b- the right terminology to search or whatever. People were showing that you could get literally like hundreds of hits right, on right. environmental topics very quickly on the. And that's website. not to
1: say that you know we as individuals or the church as an institution can't do more to try to you know be better stewards of the earth. And I think that's maybe in part why. Uh, talks like Dallin H. Oaks's were so good because he went and talked about specifically um, what the church is doing for humanitarian and welfare aid but in the future maybe it would be appropriate for the church to talk about things that they're doing for you know environmental sure, efforts sure. that they're making and just to keep it on the top of our minds that yeah. this is also part of what we do as disciples of Jesus Christ and and I think we can make more strides when we're just talking about it more. So I think we may very
2: well hear that talk eventually because the church as as we i think uh well as most of us know own significant quantities of land that it uses some of it for agricultural some of it for preserves, some of it for other sorts of things and i think environmental stewardship is actually a, a fairly important part of how they manage and uh, care for their stewardship of that land so i think it is something that the church does and Given, given the right opportunity, you may very well hear someone speak about it eventually.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the last talk that I really liked in the... Well, I liked all of them, of course. We don't have favorites. But I really enjoyed Alder Pearson's talk in the Saturday evening session. And that one I'm I feel like I'm going to have to review because it was really dense. And I feel like he was mm-hmm. kind of... It was a little bit of a Neil A. Maxwell style talk because like he was using pretty high vocabulary. I feel like usually the church makes you uh, lower your reading level for general conference talks. But he was uh, had really like densely packed rhetoric in a lot of his sentences. So I was trying to take notes and like take down some of his points, but I couldn't even get all of them. Cause he just kept like firing money quote after money quote, but he talked about our willingness and how like the sacrament prayers talk about like that. We are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ and always remember him. And so he talked about how that applies in our discipleship and that willingness is like the catalyst of faith and how social media influencers are not going to always align with the gospel. So don't necessarily search to them for truth. Um, and I loved this quote. Discipleship is not cheap Because the companionship of the Holy Ghost is priceless. So if we really are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ and have his spirit to be with us, it's going to require something on our part. But that companionship of the Holy Ghost is priceless. I thought it was just really, really good.
0: Um, I also thought that uh, in that same session, uh, the closing uh, address by Elder Anderson was... Really, really good. Um, He talked about, uh, you know, the Savior's parable of the wheat and the tares. um, And he he stressed like, hey, you know, uh, the point of this parable is we're going to have to live among the tares. They're going to be mixed in with the wheat in the last days. And uh, that's just going to be, you know, kind of the way it is. And someone else uh, in commenting on this pointed out that in Jacob 5, when you – have that allegory of the olive tree and before like the very last gathering, the Lord just says, okay, I'm gonna let the the wild and the tame olives grow together for a while uh, before we gather in at the at the last day. And so we're kind of the, the point being, hey, we're kind of at this stage here where where wheat and tares are growing together, wild and tame olives are growing together. And then he provided kind of some advice and counsel on how to um, uh, deepen and strengthen our faith in the midst of – while being in the midst of terrorism. And he talked about um, immersing ourselves more completely in Jesus' life teachings, uh, majesty, power, and atoning sacrifice – he talked about uh, – just like Elder Christofferson, he talked about the importance of making covenants with him as being a, a really important way to um, – to, he said to love uh, – to allow the love of the Savior to sink more deeply into one's heart. Um, and then uh, the third thing he said was um, treasure, protect, defend, and safeguard the gift of the Holy Ghost with all our heart. Um, And like Elder Pearson, he said it's a gift beyond price. So, you know, some really practical uh, advice and instructions on how to really kind of commit and deepen our faith while recognizing that we're going to be in the midst of tares. But I think going a little beyond that, and I can't remember if he addressed this kind of thing in his talk or not, but realizing that that wheat and tares are growing up together, it goes back again to what Jasmine was was talking about when – when summarizing elder pearson's talk that like you can't just like trust social media influencers um even if they identify as latter-day saints and things like that just because um you know there's we you gotta you gotta be a little more discerning right if you know because there's wheat and tares and and even the very elect will be deceived and so on and so forth so
1: i appreciated that talk oh go ahead Hales.
2: I was just going to say, as it goes, influencers don't have the best survivability of any particular group of people that you can choose um, in terms of spiritual survivability. Right. Uh, So carry on.
1: (laughs) I appreciated the talk because, um, you know, it talked about these wheat and the tares and how we need to be more diligent. If we don't want to get choked by the tares, we need to be more diligent in seeking Jesus Christ. But I think it also kind of gives a little relief in that we don't have to be worried about sifting the wheat and the tares ourselves, we have to be discerning, but we don't have to be in charge of harvesting those wheat and tares and separating them. We know that we're going to be coexisting with wheat and tares. So it's not necessarily up to us, to To do that job for the Lord, and so we just need to do the best we can to live a Christ-like life and emulate Him in everything we do. But we don't necessarily have to be worried about giving final judgment, if you will. And that's a theme I kind of sense throughout the conference, at least as far as things that I need to like take into my life. I felt like that was a message for me that um, the Lord's mercy is a lot more expansive than we give credit for. Elder Gong really drove home that message, and El- uh, Sister uh annette dennis sent that message too that like the lord is so infinitely loving and we need to focus on ourselves and keeping our covenants and having that relationship with christ um but it but we can kind of you know not be so concerned about judging everyone else or or sorry i'm the you know making those final judgment calls because that's ultimately the lord's place
0: all right, well, we only have a few more minutes left before we need to uh, move on to our Come Follow Me segment of the show, uh, and we've only covered day one of conference. Uh, it's, it's
1: been Well, a... we covered day two as well. We did President Nelson's uh, address at the end.
0: Uh, oh, well, yeah. We At the very beginning, we talked a little bit about his address, but we didn't even mention the temples. <laughs> uh so, There's 18 new temples. You, eight, can, you can Google 18 them. 18 new temples. <laughs> um, but do we want to – are there any um, any highlights from this morning or this afternoon that uh, anybody would like to discuss or or, or whatever before we move on?
3: Hi- highlights for me were Elder Holland, the goat, Elder Holland speaking <laughs> this morning, and I was able to see in person, which was nice. Elder Gong was a highlight for me. And President Nelson at the end of the morning session – Talk about overcoming the world. Uh, very, very nice message that was great to hear, um, especially in the context of everybody really on edge these days because of how bad things are looking around us. Um, I think with Elder Holland, well, I mean, we should talk about that for a minute because he got into this idea of why Latter Day Saints don't use the cross, and he gave he gave a theological justification for why Latter Day Saints don't use the cross. Um, which is an interesting conversation to have besides the historical factors that have gone into why Latter-day Saints don't use the cross. He never actually came out and said, don't use the cross. Using the cross is bad. Um, he just kind of gave his, his views on why like, writ large Latter-day Saints don't use the cross, like why the church doesn't put it in their buildings and things like that, right? Um, but, but yeah, he was very careful to say like, look, we're not trying to diminish other Christians who, who do use the cross as a symbol for their faith. Um, so I thought, and he tied that into, we should lift up our cross. Like that was his big theme, right? Jesus says disciples have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so he, he got into that. So I think that's probably one of the big highlights from the morning session was Elder Holland's directly addressing why Latter-day Saints typically don't use the cross it would be interesting to read that in connection with john hilton iii's work on on latter-day saints use of the cross um john hilton iii at byu has done some work on this he's surveyed some of the students on this looked at scriptural passages uh relating to the cross like it's funny that like far and away when scriptural authors talk about the atonement they tend to link it with the cross like the death on on the cross right uh whereas Latter-day Saints today typically talk about it in terms of the Garden of Gethsemane. So you can you can discuss ways where you can sort of harmonize that. So reading Elder Holland's talking connection with that
0: might be useful to get
3: some broader perspective on it.
0: I believe uh, John Hilton's book is called Reconsidering the Cross. Yeah, or
3: reclaiming Re- the Cross. Yeah, or I ca- like that. I couldn't remember it was
0: yeah. reconsidering or reclaiming uh, one of those two. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're interested in checking that out, I'm sure we know John. I'm sure he would – He's he wouldn't have any beef with Elder Holland and what he had to say. And so um, it, it's important to just consider uh, some of the history as well, like uh, the historical use of the cross among Latter-day Saints, uh, whatever our – Considering the, the cross. Is considering the cross. OK. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, a very interesting uh, – maybe to put those perspectives in conversation with each other.
1: Another, just a note on the temples that were announced. So 18 total were announced and that's more than last conference. I'm pretty sure this is a a new record, 18, because last time was 17. And president Nelson himself has announced a hundred temples in his, Time am over 100 at this point, And now there are 300 temples officially announced. So he's really broken record after record after record. We thought of President Hinckley as the great temple builder, but President Nelson has really kind of left him in the dust. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting is he separated the announcement from... He announced the first 14 temples and then said, and there will be four additional ones um, in the large metropolitan area around Mexico City. And so I'm wondering... They didn't explicitly say this, but I am wondering if these are going to be like adapted, smaller, more efficient, like mini temples, because they're more close geographically to each other, but they're to serve a larger area. Or if these are going to be like full-fledged temples with, you know, three different ordinance rooms or whatever, because I know that they were experiencing, I want to say, was it in, uh, I think they were, now I can't remember, but there was... um, It
2: sounds like they were having logistics problems getting... Possibly getting to the temple because of the size of the metropolitan
0: area. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Mexico Mexico City. Yeah, Mexico City. I don't remember what it is, but it is it is like one of the largest cities in the world. And when I say one of the largest, I don't mean like top ten. Like it's like one of the top two or three biggest cities in the world. Uh, All right, it looks like we're going to be having our break here. This is the interpreter show. We'll be right back. Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. All right, welcome back to the Interpreter Show. Uh, just once again, I'm Neil Rapley. I'm joined here in studio by Jasmine Rapley and Stephen Smoot, and uh, we still have, I hope, uh, Hales Swift by phone. You're still there, right, Hales? Yep. Excellent. Uh, just, uh, just as a, a point of, just before we were going into the break, I just wanted to correct myself a little bit. I said that. Mexico City was one of the two or three largest cities in the world. I was incorrect. It was number five. It's the fifth largest city in the world. You're
3: still in the top ten, Neil. That's yes, okay.
0: and uh, yep. and it is the largest city in North America. So, isn't uh, it also uh, the oldest? Uh, yeah. It well, absolutely. It is <laughs> like it, oldest metropolitan city, it, right? It it is its origins is technically Aztec. It is. Uh-huh. Um, okay. It goes back to. According to the Wikipedia page, they link it back to March 13th, uh, 1325. That's a weirdly specific date for a city. Well, you know, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, that's – so 697 years ago, uh, so almost 700 years ago. What
3: do they call Anahuatl, Do I,
0: you, know? you know? Come on, you know. You know uh, maybe maybe Hales can go ask Brant real quick. Come up, Mister Mesoamerica they're Book of in the, Mormon guy in the town. They're in the same town there, uh, but yeah. So it's it's the fifth largest in the world. It's the largest in North America. It is as as we noted one of the oldest. And so it, you can see it's a very large metropolitan area. There's there's a lot of you you can see how there might be need for having maybe some smaller temples dispersed throughout it rather than just one that people have to get around to. Um, But with that said, we do need to start getting into our Come Follow Me portion of our show today. Um, And this week we will be um, covering—it'll be the lesson for November 7th through 13th. It's um, Hosea and Joel. Um, And specifically, uh, the lesson just covers Hosea chapters 1 through 6— um and uh and then chapters t- uh, 10 through 14 and then the book of Joel is only i think what three chapters or is it four three chapters so uh that one's nice and short these are i don't know technically we've probably already had an introduction to the minor prophets at this point uh or well, maybe not um but these are these are part of what's called the minor prophets or the book of 12 in Jewish tradition um and um, uh, the background for a lot of these prophets isn't super well known or established, at least so far as I understand. Maybe Stephen, our our actual resident Hebrew Bible <laughs> expert here, could can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know what the date traditionally is for the book of Joel – uh, but Hosea,
1: not good dating on the Book of Joel. I mean, it could be yeah. the exile. It could be all the way during the United Monarchy. I mean, it's really unclear.
0: Yeah, like like I said, uh, a lot the background on a lot of these books is is really hard to to pin down. Hosea is one of the exceptions to that. That's true. Yep. Uh, we do have a pretty good idea. He's an 8th century prophet um which makes him roughly contemporary probably a little bit earlier than Isaiah mm-hmm. uh for a point of reference for some people um uh from what i understand he's he's generally thought to be like the first half of the 8th century BC and uh it's a little noteworthy that he is a northern kingdom prophet um uh, most of the prophets in the bible because it was it was organized and compiled in uh, Jerusalem are, you know, prophets to Judah in the southern kingdom, but he is he's he's a prophet who was called to the northern kingdom of Israel and ministered so that, there.
2: That's why there's so much Ephraim here.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, it's talking a lot about Ephraim and Israel, and it occasionally he'll he'll toss in Judah, but that's yeah. really his emphasis is the northern kingdom. Um, so I don't know if anybody else has anything else to offer on the background here before we. Uh, jump in
3: I get PTSD reading Hosea <laughs> and the reason for that being in my in my grad school work and my yeah. coursework for my PhD I took uh, two classes on biblical Hebrew poetry and we read the book of Hosea because spoiler alert a lot of it is poetry um, as the sure. prophets are wont to do they structure a lot of their oracles uh, as poetry. And uh, reading the poetry of Hosea is hard in Hebrew. It's uh, it's not very clear in some places. It's not impossible. It's just hard. You have to take your time with it. And my favorite anecdote uh, to give people a sense of how much they take for granted when they're reading a, a translation of Hosea. My favorite anecdote is that uh, uh, Jerome, when he was doing his commentaries on the Latin Vulgate translation of the Old Testament. Uh, he began by saying Hosea is hard. <laughs> he he apparently leaves a comment in there. My uh, one of my classmates who's a Catholic priest brought that up. Uh, that Jerome's commentaries he also don't like Hosea, but Hosea is a really fun book. But yes, uh, that's all I want to say in terms of background. Is uh, if I start you know having shakes and fits while reading Hosea, that's why It's <laughs> because I find myself in my in my coursework again.
1: I re- when I really love the book of Hosea just from a conceptual perspective because it centers around that metaphor of Israel being the bride of Christ. And you see it a lot referenced lightly in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, but Hosea takes it to a whole new level because it becomes very literal for the prophet Hosea where the Lord commands him to the Lord commands Hosea to take a harlot for a wife who is persistently and chronically unfaithful to him, and kind of like the pain that he feels for that. And it's this metaphor for how Israel's always unfaithful to the Lord, yet he always takes her back, and how the Lord's mercy is infinite and all of that. And I don't know, just laying it out in that metaphor, well, it's not a metaphor, laying it out so literally like that for Hosea makes it just all the more real, more visceral, more potent. Because, um, I mean, when I think about being in a marriage relationship, even before I was married, I would think about this, this metaphor about how, how absolutely heartbreaking, like one of the worst things that can happen to a person is like their spouse cheating on them and how heartbreaking that is, how tragic that is and how unforgivable it is to a lot of people. And yet to see the Lord over and over and over just accept Israel back is uh, something that just... Really resonates a lot with me as I read the book of hosea, so i 'm looking forward to diving into the details uh, and uh, to stephen 's
0: point uh, given that the Hebrew here is really hard this is that 's generally a good indication that you know it might be a good idea if you are having a hard time with the book of Isaiah, consult additional translations if if you can 't read the Hebrew yourself, which is probably most of us. Uh, um, this is when it can be really productive to actually consult some different translations or a study Bible that might have some notes that can help explain some of the confusing language and things like that, because translators are having a hard time with this language, and so seeing the range of translation and how different translators have handled it can be helpful in these kinds of, of situations and circumstances. Yeah, if you get
3: it's the...
2: worth realizing that with poetry, sometimes... The this stuff really is multivalent. It's, it's designed to convey multiple meanings at the same time and play those off of each other in, in interesting ways in order to further its ultimate point.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Stephen? I was just going to say, if you happen to avail yourself of the JPS Tanakh... Uh, <laughs> You will become well acquainted with the phrase "meaning of Hebrew uncertain" in the textual notes of the JPS translation of, of Hosea. So, yes, please. Uh, it is to your benefit to consult different translations of Hosea to see how different translators handle it.
0: You, you gotta love it when when you're reading an actual you're, you're reading an English translation, but then the note says "meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain," and you're like, well, "Well, then, where did this come from?" <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, so so why don't we go ahead and dive in, uh, starting in Hosea 1. And uh, Stephen, I think uh, you were going to yeah. have some comments for that.
3: Uh. Right. So Hosea 1 begins with a superscription. We like this because it gives us a dating for our book uh, because we know when these kings reigned. Um, so we can put a smack dab in the middle of the 8th century. So that's nice. So we know we have a sense of when he's he's prophesying and right off the bat the first thing that hosea is told is to go uh get, i love this get thee a wife of whoredoms and a children of whoredoms. that's uh that's a nice uh, jacobian way to say yeah go uh go get a wife who is a prostitute uh, or 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 uh, a, a woman of loose moral values, you might say, right? And as Jasmine so uh, – as she so well put it, uh, the imagery here is unmistakable. So uh, Israel is being condemned for its idolatry um, and its political malfeasances. So in chapter 1, there's reference down – let me see. Uh, verse 4-5, uh, verse there's a reference to that the deeds of the house of Jehu – for the bloody deeds at Jezreel. So this is referenced back in 1 Kings 21, I want to say, uh, the the incident with uh, uh, the vineyard of Naboth in the mm. valley of Jezreel, yeah. right, with King yeah. Ahaz. Uh, and hey, what do you know? Jahaz, or Ahaz is mentioned here, right? So you have um, – you, you have all this so, – so you have this reference to political malfeasance and shenanigans going on, uh, but also idolatry, right? And so every time you see – well, most of the time I think when you see references to Israel being a wife of whoredoms or playing the whore or they go whoring after other gods or whatever, yes, this imagery is, is Israel is the unfaithful bride. So to highlight this, uh, God instructs Hosea the prophet to go take uh, this woman named Gomer – uh, and, uh, this, this woman of harlotry, this wife of whoredom, uh, Gomer, there's questions about whether, you know, she was married to him first and then she acted the part of the harlot or whether she already was. I mean, there, I mean, we can't really know for sure, but, but the bottom line is, uh, here's the symbol, uh, with, um, uh, with Gomer. But what's interesting is she's going to have kids with Hosea and the kids are going to get some pretty fun names.
0: Well, so, well, Gomer already is a pretty fun one. I don't know if anybody out there is expecting and trying to think of a good daughter's name, but Gomer isn't it. I'm going to tell you that right now. Yeah, I'm
3: looking up "Hello" <laughs> and it's saying um, a shortened form of yada yada completion enough so uh so you know like enough i guess i don't know right i, I i'm not married maybe that's what you say all the time in a marriage enough honey right i don't know um yeah, you've, you've uh, had
0: enough with her unfaithfulness I something suppose. like that
3: but yeah something like has accomplished it is enough or the imperative enough something like that yeah so so gomer has a fun name um but we're also going to get some fun names for the kids so we're going to get uh for example in verse six uh she conceived again and bore a daughter and he said to him, name her Loru Ruhamah, for I will no longer accept the house of Israel. Uh Hamah, meaning uh, not accepted, not having accepted, not having obtained. Um, it's also kind of like a play on words because it sounds like the word for like mercy. So it's like no mercy, uh, you no, know, pity. no pity, something like that. <laughs> so the first kid is going to be uh, no mercy, no acceptance, no pardon, because it says for I will no longer accept the house of Israel or pardon them. Again, um,
1: not one that you'd find on the bump.com yeah, or like babynames.com. Yeah, what to expect when you're
3: expecting, you know, name your yeah. kid, Loruhama. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm telling you these
0: these are not, you know, if you're expecting these are not, this is not the chapter to go to, to to find your baby name.
2: Yeah, definitely so not. you saying we uh, shouldn't just name our child Rejection, but replace the C with a K?
0: Rejection.
3: Oh, that's pretty good, actually, yeah. And like, it's like, it's like R-Y-J-E, yeah, K-T-I-O-N or whatever. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, Hales. Um, so, so the second kid in verse 8, um, uh, after we get lo Ruhama, uh, she's going to conceive a second kid, <coughs> excuse me, a son, and the son's name is Lo-Ami, which you might be able to guess means not my people. And so uh, because he says, sure enough, ye are not my people. I will not be your God. So this is a divorce here. Uh, you know, uh, God and Israel have to, you know, take some time apart from each other kind of things. See separate people kind of things. Uh, so clearly this is an indication of God's, you know, scholars call it like the, the prophetic divorce, right, between uh, the, the nation and the God, uh, the deity. Um, and these kids are going to get these names to really drive the point home. Uh, As prophets are wont to do, they do these prophetic gestures – you know, lying naked in the street or, you know, things like that. In this, I think that's Isaiah, right? Uh, Walking barefoot around the city like Ezekiel. In this case, it's going to be naming your kids these names. Um, So that's kind of the setup here that we get uh, in chapter one. We're setting up that uh, we're going to have a separation. We're going to have a a national divorce between God and Israel, the reason being because of Israel's idolatry. And again, the symbolism is very straightforward. Chapter two is where you're going to get into the litany of sins that Israel is has committed that's going to justify sort of the, uh, the national divorce or, or justify the prophetic condemnation um, and so you get into starting around verse uh, two uh, verse two and three this is where the poetry picks up by the way. Um, so your King James translation isn't structured this way but a lot of modern translations will structure it where uh, when the prophet enunciates the the, the cause of the condemnation, and gives the prophetic oracle for what, why things are so bad. It's in a system of poetry. And this is what we have here. Uh, the, the main takeaway is going to be uh, these sort of poetic parallelisms that are going to come up here uh, to really drive the point home. So uh, – and it's not a good situation. So starting in verse 5, for example, um, uh, and I'm reading the JPS Tanakh here. Uh so the versification uh, well it's starting in uh, verse 3 in the King James uh, so I'll read just King James, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the days that she was born and make her as a wilderness. This is God referring to Israel, right? And set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst and I will not have mercy upon her children for they be the children of whoredoms. You don't want to hear God saying that about your kids. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that hath conceived them hath done shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Uh, Interestingly, we get a connection between um, uh, idolatry and uh, prosperity, right? Mm-hmm. This is a theme we see in the Book of Mormon that our Latter-day Saint re- listeners will find interesting, uh, linking the acts of idolatry. Why are they doing this? Well, these other gods are going to give us nice things. They're going to give us food. They're going to give us uh, – Uh, nice clothes, things like that, right? So because of this, God's not too happy, uh, starting uh, in verse 6 in the KJV uh, translation. I have a question real quick. Sure.
1: So with verse 4, is that implying that the children she has, Ami and Ruhamah, Are the children of her infidelity or did she conceive them with Hosea or is it just kind of conflating everything?
3: I I get the sense it's conflating everything and a lot of the commentaries say that too because once you get these symbols happening here, it's hard to differentiate. When is the symbol like referring to the wife and the actual kids versus when is the symbol being applied to corporate Israel as a whole? Um, it might even be like deliberately blurred, right? To, to sort of give it this sense of uh, you can't n- nicely delineate it to like try to to try to get out of the prophetic condemnation. Well, and, and given
2: the state of ancient paternity testing, I think it probably could be nothing but blurred.
0: Right. Yeah, I I was just going to make that same point, Hales. In in antiquity, you know, you don't have uh, paternity tests and stuff like that, and so if you have a wife who is playing the harlot and being unfaithful you actually don't have, strictly speaking, a way to know if the children are yours or not. Uh, And so, you know, when it says that uh, they were conceived in adultery, well, if she was committing adultery at the time, like, you just – you don't know. You have no idea. Are these my kids or not at that point? And I do think it's worth noting there at the beginning of that verse, it has that reference to no pity or no mercy – um which is obviously an allusion back to the name of the of the daughter um in uh, in chapter 1 there mm-hmm. uh, but anyway uh, go ahead and continue stephen
3: yeah i know that that's a good question i think i think we're kind of hitting the mark there um as we proceed further because it's not all doom and gloom in chapter 2 i mean it does get pretty bad right like god in verse 10 and 11 says uh I will cause all of her mirth—that's uh, like her rejoicing, right? So her her happiness. I will cause all of her mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her sabbaths, all her solemn feasts. Uh, this is like Isaiah language, right? So not, none of Israel's cultic and rituals or activities are going to be acceptable to me. Uh, I'll destroy her vines, her fig trees, all the sort of stuff. It goes on, etc. Um, however, the nice thing is is that uh, starting in verse uh, fourteen. Uh, the King James says, "I will uh, allure her and bring her into the wilderness." Uh, a better transition would be like, uh, "I will uh, like speak coaxingly to her, right? Like, uh, and so, and then later, I will speak tenderly to her." This is not, now I'm going to the JPS Tanakh. Um, I will give her vineyards from there. Uh, there she shall respond as in the days of her youth when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, and you will call me Ishii, which is my husband. So once again, hey, there's no divorce anymore. We're going to get remarried. Uh, once again, God will be Ishi, my uh, my husband, my man, and no longer will you be my baali. Uh, so uh, there 's a play on words here, right, because Baal obviously is the God the the Canaanite God that these people are worshiping, but Baal in Hebrew also is like a master or lord or a possessor right so it 's an honorific for a husband or, or a male figure, so you will no longer call me Baal as in like you know you won 't longer worship the Baals you will instead call me Ishi my husband it 's much it 's a much more intimate word, yeah. uh, much more intimate phrase, so God is reclaiming Israel. Um, uh, and so the, the message is even though Israel done goofed really bad and we have to go on a national divorce, God will allow for Israel's repentance and restoration. So there's always this lingering sense of uh, repentance as possible, restoration as possible. Um, with, without belaboring the point too much here um, – oh, and then by the way, it concludes uh, starting in verse uh, 23 – And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that have not attained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people. And they will say, thou art my God. So uh, in other words, the kids that have the name Lo-Ami, you are not my people, uh, he's reversing the names, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying, yes, I'll take you back. You will be my people. You will have pity and acceptance from me. Um, Finally, we'll just uh, say really quick in verse or in in chapter 3, and then I'll hand it over to whoever's next. We have a second thing where Hosea is supposed to go and take a harlot as a wife. Um, And there's debate if this is the same woman or a different woman. Um, uh, But but the the metaphor is repeated, right? Where Hosea is going to befriend a woman uh, who has been with others. uh, But they – and this is where we get – look, they will turn to other gods and love the cups of the grape. Uh, So uh, – or flagons of wine in the King James. So maybe we're not out of the the woods just yet uh, with Israel's idolatry um, or it's like a prophetic repetition or a parallelism of some sort. Um, but what I do want to point on here real quick before I hand over the mic uh, is it ends with a sort of messianic prophetic statement of sorts. So um, I will – I'll read – I guess I'll read the King James. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. It's interesting the teraphim are there. What are those? We're not sure. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Remember, David, we're long past David, right? This is uh-huh. divided monarchy. This is... Uh, interfactional fighting between the kingdoms, etc. So clearly we have and, and shall fear and, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness uh, in the latter days So or the days to come. So clearly we have a sort of messianic-ish prophetic statement about the return of the Davidic dynasty. It's all wrapped up together in the sense of, okay, once you put away your harlotry, put away your idolatry, you come back to me, I'll restore your lands, I'll restore all the good stuff that I took away from you, and you can get the Davidic king figure back. And so Obviously, as Christians, as Latter-day Saints, this should, you know, raise a red flag because we can read this messianically, uh, but uh, at the very least, politically speaking, there's this yearning to return to the Davidic ideal, um, presumably we think by, the, by the, the reunification of the two kingdoms.
0: It, it almost feels like chapter three is like an epilogue of sorts that right. kind of restates what chapters one and two uh, did in a little more elaborate language and detail uh, because, yeah, it already talked about this going and marrying a harlot and having these kids. And then it goes on this long poetry rant about, well, not rant, I shouldn't say, but, um, and, and, but it culminates with this prospect of a return and a reunification. And, and then that prophecy there really kind of puts a bow on it, Mm -hmm. if you will, uh, in this promise that like, yes, there will be a restoration at some point uh and a reunification under a davidic king under a messiah if you will um so yeah uh really good stuff does anybody want to add or comment on uh on that at all before we move on no my
3: summary was perfect do not add to it no just
0: kidding <laughs> yeah if anyone,
1: adds into, it, yeah, if be anyone
3: adds into the words of this book they will be condemned no
0: <laughs> just kidding um, if In that case, uh, we'll go ahead and move along. Uh, I actually looked at uh, chapters 4 through 6, uh, this last uh, little bit here, um, and uh, I don't have a lot to say about these, um, but it does kind of continue these themes in a lot of ways here. Uh, the Lord begins, um, he says uh, in the King James, it says, "...the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land." And uh, that word that's translated controversy is, is – do you say it rib or reeb? Reeb. Reeb. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a legal term in ancient Hebrew. And so what the Lord is basically doing here is he's bringing a – he's bringing charges against Israel in court, if you will. Um, and he's uh, – he, he kind of enumerates the charges over the next couple of verses Um he talks about uh, there's no truth, no mercy, uh, nor knowledge of God in the land. So they're not worshiping Him. They're not they're not following truth. There's no mercy. Uh, there's uh, there's swearing and lying and killing and stealing. I mean, this is this is like just a, a pretty enumerated list of like, hey, you're breaking all the commandments. Okay, committing adultery. Um, blood touches blood, toucheth blood, which is a, kind of a Levitical thing there. Um, And he goes on with some additional things. Uh, A lot of this is going to feel pretty arcane, I think, for a lot of people. The land uh, mourn and languish, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heavens, fishes of the sea, and so on. Um, Where I think it gets interesting if I can find um, uh, where...
3: Uh, Starting in verse uh, well 3 in uh, the JPS, this would be like... I think verse, uh, yeah, verse three. Is that what you're talking about?
0: Yeah. Um, well, that's wh- that's where it's talking about the land mourning and things like that. Uh, but it, it kind of just continues on with with all of this stuff here. Um, but when you get to verse ten, it talks about um, they shall they shall eat and they shall not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and it shall. Uh, and shall have, shall not have, or shall not increase. Um, and it it uses from from verses ten through twelve. It picks up this theme of of whoring that you get in in chapters one and two a lot. Uh, it talks about whoredom uh, tw- uh, three times and uh, culminates with it saying uh, they have gone a whoring from under their God. Um, and then in verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, burn incense from the hills under oaks and poplar elms, uh, because the window thereof is good, and their daughters shall commit whoredom, and uh, spouses shall commit adultery. Um, and this is, you're, you're getting, this is really kind of the heart of the charge here, is that they're committing adultery, or they're they're committing, they're cheating on God, basically, by, by pra- practicing idolatry. And this is a recurring theme throughout the hebrew bible is that um when you worship another god you are basically you're you're basically committing adultery you're you're having an affair because as as we just talked about and as is made very clear and kind of real in hosea's own life with this analogy to gomer uh gomer is that uh israel is supposed to be god's bride and that's how it's it's conceptualized there um
1: I mean, when you think about why that's always the metaphor, why idolatry is equated with adultery, I think it probably comes down to to covenants, really. I mean, the marriage covenant is one that is super binding. It requires 100% loyalty. It's permanent. And so, and that's, the kind of covenant that Yahweh or that God wanted to forge with Israel. Now, I don't know. Stephen might know more than me, but I don't know of any other situation in the ancient world where a God like makes a covenant with a covenant people in the same like scope and scale that Israel does. And so perhaps the marriage covenant really is like the only way to kind of compare or to Mm. liken or to make sense of this abstract concept of being in a covenant relationship with your patron deity well what's interesting
3: is my off the head understanding is most of the time gods make covenants with kings and like 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 localized you know polities right um yeah i think this is i think the Bible's unique in that he makes a covenant like with everybody right at sinai and and, and so forth but typically like you're making a pact or a covenant a treaty between the god and the king or like the nation state or whatever as opposed to the to- yeah so that that's an interesting point
0: um anyway it continues on with this language in in chapter four uh about kind of adultery or whoredom and and then in verse 15 you you have israel played the harlot right um and so this is where you kind of get this more this, this explicit connection like it doesn't say say mention gomer here right we're done with that specific analogy but you you have this echo back that Gomer really represents Israel in going and playing the harlot um and then you know it really just chapter 5 in a lot of ways repeats a lot of this this same pattern or theme at the beginning again you have some legal language um in 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 verse 1 for judgment is toward you um And it talks about in verse 3, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. Um, You know, it goes through and kind of uh, identifies some additional, you know, things that they're being judged or punished for and things like that. Um, It does, at the end, is you you get some tie-in. Um, You kind of get – basically the Lord is predicting here or prophesying of the destruction of Ephraim uh, at the hand of the Assyrians here um, in this chapter as like – this is where the punishment is meted out or or explained here, right? And that's why it begins with this judgment. Um, Verse 13 um, talks about um, uh, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then when Ephraim to the Assyrians – uh, and sent to King Jerob uh, and he could not heal you nor cure you of your wound uh, and so saying look Assyria can't help you um, for I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah um, and even and I, even I will tear and go away and will take away and none shall rescue him and so he's saying you're going to be destroyed and he's even saying Judah will be destroyed too
1: uh, I have a question some if Hosea is somewhat cl- contemporary with Isaiah during Isaiah's time, he is dealing with the um, uh, he's dealing with like the destruction of the northern kingdom and Assyria coming and destroying them. and then you've got the destruction of Jerusalem with the siege of Sennacherib. And so Isaiah's prophesying kind of in that milieu where Assyria is the bad guy. And so, in here in Hosea, where you've got in verse 13, almost sounds like Ephraim tried to align themselves with Assyria or make an ally of Assyria. Do either of you have any context of uh, what that historical background of that might be? I mean, I don't know. If Hosea is a little before Isaiah, was Assyria a viable ally at that point? Yeah, there's –
3: okay, now I'm trying to think of my history of Israel class I just took (laughs) (laughs) earlier this year where we addressed this. Um, Yeah, there there was a brief moment where um, there was talk of an alliance between the northern kingdom and Assyria, and I think it was against – um, oh shoot! Who are they? I think it was one of these one of these other Trans Jordanian kingdoms, as I as I understand it, right? Uh, so like Moab or Edom or something like that. Um, but yes, there, there's there's a brief moment. Uh, it's like the it's like the Soviet Nazi non aggression pact kind of deal in the 1930s, right? Uh, where yeah, where the Assyrians and the Northern Kingdom briefly lined. But um, I could try to Google it real quick to refresh my memory. But yeah, th- th- this could be referring to something like that. Um,
2: where like an they only made the, so that one
3: side can break it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's an interesting episode, and I'm, I, I guess I'm I, I'm kind of mad that I can't remember it now because literally in our class we talked about this. So,
0: so but I, rest
3: assured that yes, there's something to that there. I just don't know the exact details offhand.
0: And these don't these don't talk specifically about the that specific historical situation, but I've got kind of a a introductory, uh, an Old Testament introductory book here by Bill Arnold and uh, Brian Bayer. Um, And they talk about how uh, most Bible scholars date the beginning of Hosea's ministry to uh, late in Jeroboam's reign. At this time, Assyria was rising to power and would soon establish itself as a world empire under Tiglath-Pileser III, Uh, and many in Israel saw this nation as a possible ally. Uh, but Hosea warned against trusting Assyria uh, for anything. So uh, that's all they say. They don't talk about the specific historical scenario. But yeah, I think I I, th- I think I remember when when reading in Kings that okay. there is kind of a, a situation like it's
3: that. It's the okay, yes. And I I feel dumb for forgetting this. Is a, yes? It's the Syro-Ephraimite War. So it's it's Judah and Assyria allied against the Northern Kingdom and Aram Aram Damascus.
0: Mm, okay, yeah.
1: I feel like it can get confusing for your average scripture reader because you've got kind of the same players across a lot of the scriptures, but sometimes they're the good guys, sometimes they're the bad yeah. guys. It's, it's like horrible. Mexican food, a lot of the same ingredients being like <laughs> mixed around, and sometimes it's a burrito, sometimes it's a taco. I mean... Egypt is the quintessential bad guy in the Exodus but then later on under like Hezekiah they're trying to make treaties with Egypt and trying to make an ally of them and same with Assyria and Babylon and Persia like all these different world players are either allies or villains depending on the time period. Well, you
0: you do see their political role in relationships change, but I do also feel like you actually pretty consistently from the prophets and from the Lord get these warnings against like really leaning on and trusting these these superpowers regardless of what the relationships might be at a particular time. Uh, There's kind of this consistent warning from the prophets like, hey, you should just put your trust in the Lord actually rather than – uh, putting your faith in these these world yep. powers, which right. tend to fail and and eventually collapse, and someone else comes along and they 're mad at you for being allies <laughs> with those guys, yep. so they punish you for it yep. and so it 's uh you know they they go politically their 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 relationship is changing, but the the prophets are generally pretty consistent and say no they 're just bad guys they 're always bad guys.
3: Um, yeah don't don 't ever make an alliance with the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, even you know, if you hate the other guy right right yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Um, anyway so then uh in chapter six though uh we get a little bit more of this redemption and and like i said the, i I really feel like in a lot of these ways these these three chapters have a similar arc to chapters one through three because you just get You get like these warnings and, you know, they're they're bringing charges against Israel and then it explains the punishment. But then chapter six, uh, come, let us return unto the Lord for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. And so there's this sense of of reconciliation between Israel um, and and uh, and the Lord here. After two days, uh, this is verse two, after two days, he will revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we will, and we shall live in his sight. Um, and I don't know if anybody's ever pointed this out or if it, it's read this way by anybody. But, you know, typologically, I just felt like there's kind of maybe a, a likening to the resurrection here. Mm. Um,
1: Valley of dry bones, baby. That's yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of that, it just kind of like this sentiment of... We know we've messed up. Let's return to the Lord and he will heal us. He'll bind us up. Like Just this ceaseless optimism in the Lord's mercy reminded me a lot of Elder Gong's talk in this last general conference when he talked about, he related this story of a woman who really resented her father because he had mistreated her, felt like he wasn't a very good father or spouse, and yet... Um, so she was reluctant to do his temple work when he had passed away, but she did it anyway. And then she had a dream where her father came to her all dressed in white and said, look, I'm clean and thanking her for doing his temple work for them. And it's like that, that story illustrates how the mercy of God is so much more expansive than we th- often give credit for, that even someone who maybe did horrible things to another human being or you think is unforgivable, clearly the Lord can forgive them. We don't know what process that person went through to get to that point, but we know that it is possible. And so that's kind of the sentiment I feel in these first few verses of chapter six, where it's talking about, let's go to the Lord. It's it's kind of that feeling when you mess up and you don't want to tell your parents, but eventually you mess up so bad, you're like, let's i i just got to go talk to my dad or i got to talk to my mom it's the, the prodigal son sort of sentiment that eventually gets so low that you know that mm-hmm. there's nothing else to do you've got to go to your parent and you know that they're going to help that they're going to heal you and bind you up
0: um and i you know i i want to wrap up so that we have time to cover some of these other uh chapters but i um i wanted to just highlight verse six in chapter six uh uh, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And uh, I don't know what uh, what the JPS translation has there.
3: I desire for I desire goodness, not sacrifice. Obedience to God rather than burnt offerings.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, and in the Net Bible, it has, I delight in faithfulness, not simply sacrifice. I delight in acknowledging well, God. it's
3: chesed. So, right. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's, yeah, that,
0: I figured it might be. Yeah. Um, so chesed being this multivalent uh, word that's very, very difficult in Hebrew. Which uh, President Nelson wrote an article on recently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but the the point the message here i think is that basically what the lord is saying is he desires like a faithful loyal relationship and connection with his people more so than like just having the the rote performance of sacrifices of burnt offerings or if we were to apply that to us today like the rote performance of of like living the standards, uh, for instance, uh, uh, you know, that were in the for strength of youth pamphlet before they just changed it or just or or just partaking of the sacrament or or going to church and reading your scriptures like it's it's about more than just kind of this rote performance of, of things. It's about developing a meaningful, deep relationship and loyalty to the Lord And it's not saying he doesn't want sacrifices and burnt offerings. Those are part of what's been commanded. But those are supposed to be helping to formulate and create this bond and relationship. And that wasn't happening. And so the the kind of the message is the Lord wants that. As, As he's trying to reunite with Israel, he's saying, let's have an actual relationship, not just you guys perform your ordinances kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but that's everything I had on those sections, uh, and I believe, um, unless anybody else wanted to add any comment on those chapters, for whatever reason, we can move on to chapters 10 through 14, which I believe uh, Hales might have some comment on.
2: I believe I might. <laughs> Starting off in, verse, er, in chapter 10, verse 1 says, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. This is all very ironic, right? They're not bringing forth unto the Lord the most important fruit of all, which is the souls of human beings prepared for exaltation. They're instead offering food to idols. And instead, of, in return for the good, goodness of the land which he's given them, They are making goodly images. But the Lord does not plan to leave the situation as it is. Uh, In verses 12 to 13, he kind of puts puts the whole situation in perspective in terms of the law of the harvest. He says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of thy mighty men. What we sow will also reap, and if we sow righteousness, we can receive mercy and blessings in abundance, because the Lord will rain righteousness upon us if we seek him with all of our hearts. If, on the other hand, we plant wickedness, we will harvest and eat the bitter fruit of that also, and it rewards us no good things choose to sow righteousness and you can and you can reap the mercy of the Lord I suppose that applies to us as well as to them um, in the next chapter there is this fairly iconic verse uh, when Israel was a child then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt the scripture is quoted in the second chapter of the book of Matthew just after the departure of the wise man uh, that is in verse 13 through 15 Uh, It says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So Matthew saw in the verse not just a a recall of the Exodus, but a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this also supports the overall Exodus typology in Christ's life, which is an interesting subject unto itself. You see Christ spending forty days in the wilderness, fasting, and so forth. Israel spent spent forty years in the wilderness. Uh, Israel goes through the Red Sea with the fire, or with the pillar of fire and water, right? Um, Jesus is uh, baptized in River Jordan, and the Holy Ghost ascends in the form of a dove. And in some some respects, the uh, parallels go on and on. um, So that all of those Exodus features, uh, in a sense, point forward to the redeeming mission of Christ. In uh, Hosea 12, uh, there is a set of recalls uh, or recollections of the Lord's former relationship with Israel. Um, In verses 3 through 6, He took his brother by the heel and the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel, and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial. Therefore, turn now to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. So we have here allusions to the episodes involving Jacob having Esau's heel and wrestling the angel. The point of these memorials is, of course, that that Israel should repent, that they should return to the Lord and themselves practice mercy and judgment, and they will then themselves warrant God's blessings of mercy. Um, in uh, chapter thirteen, they start off by saying, "When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died." Is it Baal or Baal? Uh
0: Baal. Uh, yeah. The guttural Baal. In their hails. Okay. <laughs>
2: Baal. For a while, when we were reading scriptures, anytime we came to Baal, the the kids would all start going Baal, Baal. <laughs> If you say um,
3: bail, I'll come down there to New Mexico and <laughs> slap you. I'm no, just kidding.
2: Okay. So apparently the kids uh, making it sound like a sheep cry were more right than not. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, not bad. <laughs> okay, I'll have to remember that. All right. But this verse, I think, is actually very telling. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. When Ephraim was humble, the Lord was able to do glorious things with him. But when he regressed to idolatry and pride, he was ruined. And I think that's... Isn't that true of all of us, right? When when we're faithful and humble, the Lord can do amazing things. And we can become more than just ourselves. But when we get too stuck on ourselves and when we begin to exalt the idols uh, uh, that the world provides, we end up crash landing our lives. Uh, In verse 4 it says, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. There is no other name given whereby salvation comes except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord of the Old Testament Is also uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but just premortally. Um, In verse 14, it it plays up the theme that I think it was Stephen alluded to uh, earlier of resurrection. It says, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Death has been arguably the great terror of human life and also the great leveler, but terribly feared because no good thing doesn't ultimately make its way to the dust. But this great force will itself face its maker because it too will go down to destruction at the hands of the Lord.
1: And certainly that's a little bit of a more aggressive metaphor than the new testament oh death yep. where is thy sting i mean oh death i will be thy plague. oh grave i will be thy destruction you know it's it's very epic well if i if i'm not mistaken i think
0: i think paul's language there oh death where's thy sting and uh-huh. uh, i think that actually it comes from the septuagint version right. of yeah. hosea 13 here
2: but it is sort of a little bit of trash talking right I will be your worst nightmare, Death. <laughs> 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 um, in verse, sorry, in chapter 14, uh, verse 2, it says, Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. And I, I think that's a beautiful image because the, their lips are making offerings. And so praise is, in this sense, like a sacrifice. Uh, in verse 4, we have, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. Always remember that there is repentance. Turn to the Lord, and he will forgive and embrace freely, if you turn to him with all your heart. And that is 10
0: through 14. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Uh so that's that's the book of uh that's the book of Hosea. We've just got a you got 5 minutes for Joel, we, we've Jasmine. We've got a few go. minutes left here. Uh <laughs> Jasmine, did you have any insights on Joel you'd like to share?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We'll just give a nice good introduction and overview to Joel. This is a very often overlooked book because it's very short compared to like Hosea. And it's about The day of the Lord, it's very much about end times, but it's not like the book of Revelation, which tends to be very apocalyptic. This is just talking about God's judgment on Israel, uh, on Israel and the entire world. When God is going to come, judge the world, make everything right, really separate those wheat from those tares, and the main the well the more prominent imagery in the book of joel to demonstrate this is a real life catastrophe a swarm of locusts that devastates the land of judah in an agricultural society like israel you know a swarm of locusts or a pestilence of locusts could destroy your entire crop and it would be devastating and so the lord uses this metaphor of these the swarm of locusts coming to destroy the crop to represent how swiftly And how brutally and how overwhelmingly the Lord is going to come and, you know, destroy the wicked and judge between the righteous and the wicked and set everything right again. Um, And he also promises that God's going to save the people of Judah and Jerusalem who call on him. As far as the background of when and where this takes place, we don't know a whole lot. Uh, The book doesn't provide any biographical information about the prophet Joel. We know his father's Pethuel, but that's all we know but it does address Judah a lot. So we can assume that this probably takes place sometime after Judah was an independent nation, maybe like late eighth century BC, or it could be anything all the way up until the Babylonian exile in the fifth century BC. So it's a pretty wide span of years where this could be taking place, but it is primarily concerned with the kingdom of Judah. So Hosea was a Northern prophet. Joel seems to pretty definitely be a Southern prophet. Um, there are several references to the temple, and uh, the temple also seems to be functioning in context of the book of Joel. But again, we don't know if this is Solomon's temple or you know the temple that they build when they come back from exile. As far as the structure, it's we've got three chapters in Joel, but it's kind of split in half a little bit. And the halves mirror each other a little bit. Um, the first chapter of chapter one is is devoted to this locust invasion, which I mean, there's a little bit of ambiguity. If this is like a sign of the time, like there's going to be a locust invasion or rather this is like a metaphor for how God is going to come in the last days, because then in chapter two, it switches to the Lord actually coming, the judgment of God's people and um, you know, destroying the wicked and uh, saving the righteous The second half of chapter two deals with a little bit more hope. There's like a consolation for God's people. There's more warnings about coming unto God. And then the final chapter is judgment on all the nations. So there's a lot of reflection on Judah needs to repent. The world needs to repent. And if not, there's going to be a swarm of locusts. He also draws an imagery of like warriors with chariots and how swiftly they'll come and devour and destroy. And so, the main themes of Joel really is about approaching the day of the Lord, which may initially bring, you know, pain because you're dealing with some catastrophes, but it ultimately should lead to uh, renewal and vindication the idea that God is going to put everything right. In the Locust Plague, um, Joel sees just how frail humanity is and just how chaotic the world really is, and it kind of emphasizes how desperately we need the Lord. So that's kind of just a b- brief overview of what Joel does and what it covers. And um, the chapters itself, oh, I'm not open to the chapter itself. But we may only have one minute here, or 30 seconds before we get cut off. But basically, the message of Joel is that we need to trust in the Lord and one day all will be made right again.
0: Also, uh, Moroni quotes Joel to Joseph Smith. Yeah, Joel too. Uh, So anyway, this is The Interpreter Show. Thank you for joining us this wonderful Sabbath evening and have a good night.